You are listening to an audio resource produced by Faith Presbyterian Church in Anchorage, Alaska. If you would like to learn more about the life and ministry of Faith Presbyterian, you can do so by visiting us online at faithanchorage.org. Well, good morning again. If you would please open your Bibles to Malachi, the last book in the Old Testament. And little theologians, I'm, uh, we're going to look at uh, a couple of verses that tell us to uh, guard our spirits or to guard our hearts. And so I'd like for you to draw something that is being guarded. Uh, maybe it's your heart that is being guarded. Guard it with uh, one fence around it and maybe a second fence. Just to be sure, maybe you guard it with a third fence, maybe even a fourth or a fifth fence. Guard that heart. That's the... Uh, passage that it's in the passage that we're going to look at this morning towards the end of the passage in verses 15 uh, through 16. But we're at Malachi nonetheless, Malachi chapter 2, verses 10 through 16. We're in fact looking at the third of six debates that these people in Jerusalem have with God. Let's pray together and then we'll look at Malachi chapter 2. Let's pray. Lord, we need your help. We need you to help us understand ourselves, the world around us. We need you to help us understand our relationships. And your word does that, Heavenly Father. We're not left simply to a natural theology to uh, see things and to feel things and then build a theology uh, from those sensations. But we have your word, Father. And your word tells us how to properly understand ourselves and the world and our relationships with others. Would you teach us with this word this morning by your grace, for your glory, in Jesus' name, amen. Uh, Again, Malachi chapter 2, beginning at verse 10. Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? Judah has been faithless, and abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob any descendants of the man who does this, who brings an offering to the Lord of hosts. And this second thing you do, you cover the Lord's altar with tears, with weeping and groaning because he no longer regards the offering or accepts it with favor from your hand. But you say, why does he not? Because the Lord was witness between you and the wife of your youth, to whom you have been faithless, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. Did he not make them one with a portion of the Spirit in their union? And what was the one God seeking? Godly offspring. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and let none of you be faithless to the wife of your youth. For the man who does not love his wife but divorces her, says the Lord, says the Lord, the God of Israel, covers his garment with violence, says the Lord of hosts. So guard yourselves in your spirit, and do not be faithless. This is the word of our Lord. 
It uh, may be that uh, some of you here were not here three weeks ago when the series from Malachi uh, began. We're looking at this, the last prophetic book from the Old Testament era, uh, written some 500 years before the birth of Jesus, and we're considering that the entire letter is divided into uh, six debates. And this morning we're going to look at the third debate. Over these past two Sundays... You must have thought to yourself how shocking it is that these people who have received uh, so much special attention from God since the days of Abraham should have such a propensity to argue with God. They assume uh, right at the beginning of our passage here in verse 10 that God cannot be offended for me. Verse 10, uh, we find this, uh, I am a part of the covenant of our fathers a phrase that refers to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And we should be abhorred that a people so blessed by God over so many centuries would argue with him so vehemently. And this, the assumption that I think all of us should make is this, that every human being has this propensity to debate with God. On the one hand, of course, this is not a difficult thing to assume. Most of you here this morning are Christians, and one of the foundational tenets of the Christian faith is that human beings are not basically good, but rather basically bad. The Christian believes that Adam and Eve were created by God for a specific purpose, and that is to glorify God and to enjoy Him all their days. They were created to live in such a way that their intimate happiness, their intimate peace would come from setting God's interests above their own. Just like the rest of creation, Adam and Eve were to satisfy the intention of God, to glorify Him alone. And a beautiful corollary to this intention of God was that they would fill the earth, Adam and Eve would, with uniquely gifted and equipped humans who would also set God's interest above their own, all of them glorifying God and enjoying Him all their days. Theologian Desmond Alexander stresses that the earth would, in this scenario, be filled with priests of God who represent to all of creation what it looks like to be intimately and happily connected to the Maker of all things. That's a glorious vision of what God intended through Adam and Eve. This vision for the earth, sadly, was sidetracked by our first parents. Rather than enjoying God's intention to glorify Him and to enjoy Him, Adam and Eve opted instead to elevate themselves above God. And in this rebellion, they represented all humankind. Christians believe that human beings are represented by Adam and Eve in a couple of different ways. They're represented by them as creatures who are made in the image of God. That's true for us today, creatures made in the image of God. But we're also represented by Adam and Eve as they are people who skewed their nature. And so we are born with skewed natures, soiled by the rebellion of our first parents. Every human being is born with a rebel nature, not a good nature. And we're looking at the ministry of Malachi, who's a follower of God. Malachi is a Christian. He's not seen as much of the Messiah as we've seen living as we do on the other side of his resurrection and ascension. But Malachi does trust in the redemptive work of his heavenly father, even if he doesn't see clearly, as we do, the worker of that redemption. Malachi is a Christian. Paul says in Galatians 3.8 that God preached the gospel to Abraham, and he trusted in that gospel. Malachi has heard the gospel and believes in the gospel. 
I want to ask you this this morning as we look at this third debate. How many sincere Christians do you suppose are in Malachi's audience? Just think about that. How many sincere Christians do you suppose there are in Malachi's audience? And the the reason I ask this question is because Christians have a remarkable ability to affirm the doctrine of original sin, but to functionally deny the doctrine of indwelling sin. Christians are saved from original sin, the sin of Adam and Eve, the guilt that comes along with that. However, uh, sin continues to reside in us, even as Christians. Sin makes its home in us, Romans 7, 17. Sin grabs hold of our desires, James 1, 14. Sin seizes upon opportunities, Romans 7, 8. Sin gratifies our flesh, Romans 13, 14. Sin hardens us to God, Hebrews 3, 13. You see, that's, this is why it's awkward business talking about the power of sin that remains within every Christian. Why else, by the way, do you think that the Bible tells us that even as Christians, or especially as Christians, we are to have repentant hearts before God? We are to confess our sins often. But how many people in Malachi's audience are sincere believers who simply struggle with indwelling sin? It it, it makes that question very hard. Perhaps some believe themselves to be Christians as they listen to Malachi preach, And they want to live lives that are fitting to God, but they struggle with indwelling sin. And it's hard then to see that they're Christians. They want to believe that God loves them, but they have doubts. That was the first debate. And perhaps some of the priests want to be steady examples and make appropriate offerings to God, but the ministry is hard. That's the second debate. And in this passage, Two times Malachi gives the people a very important command. Our little theologians are drawing that command. If you look at verses 15 and 16, you'll see it. God tells them to guard themselves in their spirit. Guard themselves in their spirit. The NIV says simply, be on your guard. And the King James Bible beautifully says, take heed of your spirit. And there's hope in those words. Can this be done? Can I guard my spirit? That that command in verses 15 and 16 would seem to indicate that there actually are Christians in Malachi's audience. But their lives don't look very pretty right now. So deeply is is their their struggle with indwelling sin. And as we look at this debate, Malachi wants the people of Jerusalem to understand that Christians are people who are called to guard themselves against devotion to self. That's what a Christian is called to do, to guard themselves against devotion to self. We want to begin with the heart of the matter of this debate, a faithfulness to self. And I need to show you that the heart of the matter is the people's intense longing to place their own interests above God's interest. Look at verse 10. Verse 10 opens with no fewer than three questions. Of course, the punctuation doesn't appear in the Hebrew text, so what we're really witnessing is a translation committee of some sort trying to make sense of these three syncopated phrases all in a row. But nearly every English Bible translate verse 10 um, a bit like this. The ESV says, Have we not all one Father? Has not one God created us? Why then are we faithless to one another, profaning the covenant of our fathers? And 
What's hard to discern is who it is speaking these questions. The text is quite unclear. It would seem to me that the questions emanate from an insincere body of people who are so sure of themselves that they presume to debate with God. And just as they had the courage to debate with God for not loving them in Malachi uh, 1-2, and just as the priests have the courage to debate with God for having the audacity to judge their ministry and their offerings in Malachi 1-6 and 7, now... They debate God for thinking even for a moment that they are not faithful to each other or faithful to their heritage as a Jewish people. What is it that the people of Jerusalem actually cling to for support? What's their, what's their defense? What doctrine would you cling to to defend yourself before God? The first thing it seems that they do in these questions is they appeal to God's character. They appeal to God's character. The first two questions of verse 10 tell us that they believe God ought to have a favorable view of them because all human beings have one Father, after all, and all human beings are created by God, after all. They're appealing to truthful statements about God's character, but they're using them in a sinful way. We've truly hit a low point in our spiritual defense before God if we're using the same evidence that even a non-believer could use. I can imagine any number of non-believers making a similar defense, insisting that God ought to show respect to them because we all have one Father, we all have one Creator after all. Or more likely, God has to love me because He is, after all, loving in His character. I've heard non-believers make that defense so many times it's tiresome. He has to love me. After all, he's a God of love. So first, they appeal to God's character, but they do so in a sinful way. The second thing they do is they appeal to their own heritage, almost as if Malachi's audience senses that that initial defense is rather weak. They add that they are faithful to the covenant of their fathers. We're ethnically connected to the patriarchs, they appeal. This is an appeal to their family tree. It seems to me that they say to God, God, it is inconceivable that you would not only challenge my faithfulness, but even consider that I would be faithless. I'm a member of the Hebrew people. And not only this, you are the father and creator of all peoples. You see, the appeals seem to come together. They don't stand by themselves, but if you bundle them together, you might be able to make a proper defense before God. But even still, I can hear a non-believer today making the, uh, masking their own unbelief under the umbrella of some vague connection to the church of their parents. I grew up going to that church. That's where my parents go to church. Or some vague connection to Sunday school classes that they attended as a, a young boy or young girl. Or maybe they'll make some vague connection to uh, having gone to a religious elementary school. You see, that's what the people of Jerusalem are doing. I am, after all, a member of your family, God. But their appeal is not only to the apparent character of God, nor to their own family tree, their own heritage. There's a third appeal that they make, and you can find it in verse 13. And that's their appeal of profound emotional outpouring in the temple as they come to make their offerings. How interesting that verse 13 would be a part of Malachi's preaching ministry. Verse 13 tells us that they cover the altar with tears 
And it paints a picture of a raging river of tears flowing on the horns of the altar in earnest worship and devotion. This surely is proof that their hearts yearn properly for the glory of God's name. The weeping and the groaning that they make ought to be heard by God as innocent faithfulness. And how can God doubt faithfulness shown in this way? Three appeals. His character, their heritage, and some kind of an emotional response that God ought to notice. But what we need to hear is we need to hear that the people are simply justifying themselves. And self-justification is almost always simplistic. It's automatic. God, I know that you're loving, so love me. Right? I know that you're loving, so love me. You made all people, so you're obligated to care for me. You put me in this family, so you owe it to me to keep me in this family. Self-justification is as natural as walking upright, drinking water. It's so easy to close ourselves from any outside influence, any judgment that might uh, tip the scales or frustrate the way we have fashioned reality. We live in a culture in which thinking in a closed system is actually praised. The, the world loves people who tune out everything and walk by the beat of their own drum. Much of what passes for create creativity in today's culture really isn't creativity at all. It's simply a protest against convention for the sake of being true to myself. That's why creative and shocking are very often synonyms. Uh, one pastor, uh, Derek Thomas, he says it this way. He says, you know, as humans, we're all wired for self-justification. We've taken a step here, haven't we? Not only are all humans bad, but we're all wired in this weird self-justifying way. It's a knee-jerk reaction of all of us. It remains in the life of the Christian. And nothing illustrates this better than the outside-the-system judgment that God offers in verse 11. Verse 11 is clear and concise, uh, regardless of how these people of Jerusalem would make sense of their surroundings. Uh, God inserts himself and he makes a judgment. Judah has been faithless. God says so, regardless of what you feel about yourself. And abomination has been committed. You feel as though you've committed no wrong at all. And someone outside the system enters your self-justifying system and states the truth. And the people of Jerusalem, they, even if they want to describe themselves as Christians, they still want to live as they see fit. They're faithful to this closed system of self. But we want to burrow down just a little bit and let's turn to consider what happens when this tendency, this faithfulness to self actually becomes a pattern. And Malachi says what it looks like is it looks like uh, not simply a faithfulness to self, it's a faithfulness to lesser gods. Let me say real quickly that this faithfulness to self is very much a regular part of the Christian life. I, I can't stress this enough. Paul is clear about this in Romans 7 when he says of himself as a Christian in verse 18 of Romans 7, I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh, for I have the desire to do what is right, but not the ability to carry it out. And this is the continuing influence of indwelling sin. And knowledge of this ought to lead us as Christians to trust the gospel of grace for our sanctification. But often it leads us to elevate personal interest over God's will for our lives. 
And while I believe that there are some in Malachi's audience who actually are Christians, who actually are simply struggling through life in their battle against indwelling sin, there are some who have gone farther. And I think that's what Malachi is talking about now. These people, rather than trust the care of God to help them in their sanctification, they actually replace God with lesser gods. They turn away from God to worship others. And that's what verse 11 is all about. Verse 11 charges the people with having married the daughter of a foreign god. Married the daughter of a foreign god. I think we're mistaken if we believe that this refers first and foremost to earthly marriage. Malachi is going to say more about marriage later, but here in verse 11, God's indicting the people in a specific way for divorcing themselves from him. He has engaged himself to them to be their perfect husband. The prophet Hosea gives us such a a beautiful picture of God engaging in marriage with his people when he writes that God is the husband of those who don't expect any mercy at all. To them, God says, I will have mercy. Hosea 2.26. It's the surprising, doting love of a perfect husband. And God is that doting husband to his bride, but his bride longs to be faithful only to herself. And then over time, She begins to run after other husbands. We need to understand that if there is clearly hope for this kind of people, then there's hope for us. Keep in the back of your mind that hope in verses 15 and 16. Can a people who have turned from their doting husband to find lesser husbands, is there any hope for these people? I think there is. But Malachi, instead of loosening up his argument, he actually gets it a little bit tighter. And he moves on to talk about a particular application, their faithlessness in covenantal relationships. God's argument against the people of Jerusalem actually becomes intensified when uh, marriages are considered. Some of Malachi's audience have gone so far as to divorce their wives for the purpose of marrying other wives. And, you know, it's hard to tell what the allure is outside the obvious. It, it may be that these women are younger and more culturally permissive than their wives. It may be that uh, these men are simply looking for what's new, and so they look for a new wife. We're, we're not told why, but whatever the reason they have, they're going to exchange their own God in order to pursue that reason or to pursue that uh, rationale. Whatever logic they employ for chasing women who are not their wives, they're willing to sell their true husband, their true spouse, to pursue this logic. They're willing to sell the glory of God to pursue this wicked logic of chasing after women who are not their wives. It's almost as if God so pales in comparison to their desire to divorce their wives that they're happily willing to chase after these other wives. I think all of us ought to find it astounding that these new wives that they have are never asked to turn from their gods. Isn't that remarkable? We're not given any glimmer that these new wives that they have are asked to turn from their gods. There's simply no need. These men of Jerusalem will happily, happily turn from their God to worship the God of their new bride. And in this passage, Malachi says a lot of things about marriage, and they're picked up by Jesus. They're, uh, in Matthew 19, they're picked up by Paul. But it seems to me that Malachi is saying three things uh, concretely about God's intention for marriage. 
Uh, first, Malachi tells us a little bit about what marriage broadcasts. Do you ever think about marriage broadcasting something? There's something about what marriage broadcasts. In verse 14, Malachi says that God was witness between you and the wife of your youth that somehow, spiritually, God presided over the formation of that marriage so that a man and a woman would belong to each other by covenant. God relates to the entire world by his covenant of grace that if you rest upon his only mediator, Jesus Christ, Jesus of Nazareth, you will be unconditionally saved. God speaks to the world in a covenant of grace, and he intended the marriage relationship to display this covenant similarity, just as there's a certain way in which people must relate with God for eternal life. So, too, is there a certain way in which husband and wife relate to one another that proclaims God's faithfulness to God's covenant of grace. A Christian marriage, it says something to the world that it isn't simply affection that holds a husband and wife together. A Christian marriage says that it's God's commitment to us that holds a husband and a wife together. That's a countercultural message. But Christian marriage ought to broadcast God's covenant faithfulness and a covenant of grace. Uh, Malachi, for for the second thing, says this. He says that marriage not simply broadcasts something, but marriage actually creates something. Verse 15. Verse 15 tells us that God makes them one with a portion of the Holy Spirit in their union. What a difficult verse this is, but it tells us that marriage unites a husband and wife by the fellow working of the Holy Spirit so that they become, Malachi just says, one. God says at creation, a man shall leave his father and his mother and hold fast to his wife and they shall become one flesh. Jesus quotes this passage, Paul quotes this passage, and both of them quote the passage to describe God's design of marriage as a unique, intimate, spirit-enabled uniting of two people, so intimately that it is not inappropriate to describe them as one. That is unique with regards to marriage. That is Christian marriage. It's God that creates that marriage. And then thirdly, what what Malachi has to say to us about marriage is that marriage not only broadcasts, not only creates, but marriage also gives. It gives the world something. Verse 15 tells us that united as these people are, husband and wife, so intimately, it is God's purpose to seek godly offspring. You see that in verse 15? That God is seeking godly offspring. This isn't a command to a husband and a wife to produce as many offspring as possible, but it is an assertion of God that all offspring are attended to come from a union like this one marriage union in order that the world would be given true worshipers of God. It's as if God is alluring the people. They, as a people in Jerusalem, as a people in Judea, they are a weak and underpopulated people. They're living on a minuscule piece of real estate in the vast Persian Empire. They blithely hope for a resurgence of King Solomon's grandeur, but acquiesce to their new life as Persian minions. They would seem to be a hopeless people, but God is saying to them, do you want to build a new nation? Do you want to build a new nation? Then produce godly children. 
It's evocative of the nation of the Hebrew people growing even under the influence of Egypt because God gave them the blessing of children that they as Christians would raise these children to love their holy God. God intends that the people would get married and they would make a nation of priests who love God. Little ones trained in the gospel who grow to be proclaimers of the gospel. Malachi asserts that marriage broadcasts something, the covenant of grace, his faithfulness to save in Jesus Christ. He says that marriage creates something, a new kind of life, two people united in one flesh. And third, he says that marriage gives the world something, little people proclaiming the gospel who grow into big people who proclaim the gospel. And when the people of Jerusalem, when they divorce their wives, here's what they're doing. They're broadcasting a message to the world that says marriage serves humankind, not God. That God cares more about my happiness than he does his own covenant faithfulness. When we divorce, we're saying that God only cares about my happiness and I am to go wherever I might that I could achieve more happiness. That's what we're saying to the world when we divorce. That God's covenant is more about my happiness than it is about his own faithfulness as it's exhibited in a pleasant relationship between a husband and a wife. And when we divorce, we actually dismember a relationship that God has created. We are dismembering something that God has made whole, an intimate relationship between husband and wife. And even in marriages in which the husband or wife becomes a believer uh, after marriage, someone who finds themselves to be married to a non-believer because they have become a believer, even that marriage is to remain intact. 1 Corinthians 7 is clear. There's something about that mysterious holiness in marriage union that ought not be dismembered. When we divorce, we actually diminish our opportunity to bring children up in a Christian home learning about the one true God, but also going into the world as an evangelist. It's not surprising to read in verse 12 that God says that their descendants will be cut off. As divorce escalates, it's harder to envision the expansion of Christian belief in the world. How beautiful that Malachi would go to marriage as an example of what God's faithfulness is like. And how challenging that Malachi would go to marriage to describe what God's faithfulness is like. But even these people who Malachi is preaching to, even these people, it would seem, are not entirely lost. These are the people to whom God says in verses 15 and 16, guard yourselves in your spirit. There's enormous hopefulness there. Watch your life, God says. Be mindful of it. Malachi has told us about our life. Now watch your life. Jonathan Edwards says it this way. I want you to listen to this. This is a sermon uh, from a sermon of his. Jonathan Edwards is a pastor from the uh, uh, early 1700s in America. He says this. He says, God has tried you with a great deal of kindness, and he never has sincerely been thanked by you for any of it. God has watched over you. God has preserved you. God has provided for you. God has followed you with mercy all your days. And yet you've continued sinning against him. He's given you food and clothing. 
but you have improved both for the service of sin. He's preserved you while you slept, but when you arose, it was to return to the old trade of sinning. God, notwithstanding this ingratitude, has still continued his mercy. Why has his kindness never won your heart, nor brought you to a more grateful behavior towards him? That's what Malachi is asking the people. Why? Why is this kindness not won your heart? What we need is we need a fresh returning to God, not according to our own definition of what it means to be faithful to him, but according to God's definition of what it means to be faithful to him. This isn't an appeal to return to church with more fervor. The people of Jerusalem, they're actually in the sanctuary pretty often. This isn't an appeal to divorce all your non-believing spouses. This is an appeal to properly understand the foundation of faithfulness before a faithful God. It is nothing less than clinging to the faithfulness of another, clinging to the faithfulness of Jesus. He is after the one who is truly faithful to God. We cannot stand before God with ignorant trust that since he's loving, he loves me, or trusting that we came from the right family or that we have the right history. We stand before God by trusting the husband that he has given for us, our divine spouse, a perfect husband. And he's a perfect husband, not just to his bride, but he is a perfect husband to his heavenly father. And in his perfection, we have favor with the father. And as a bride like us, we look to him to represent us before the father. And as his bride, all of our worship is directed to him, our husband. And as his bride, even deplorable lives lives torn by our own divorce, lives torn by our own faithlessness, lives muddied up as we have toyed with the worship of other gods, lives muddied up by debating with the one true God. But even these deplorable lives, under the care of such a rich, precious, perfect husband, even all of these things can be undone by a fresh return to him. Because this husband will make us whole. This husband is the only husband that can make us whole. If Malachi has hurt the people, bruised the people, injured the people, he has done so that they would return to their husband. Brothers and sisters, by all means, guard your spirit. Let's pray that he would help us in that and then receive a couple of new members. Let's pray. Our Father, would you help us? You have given to us a perfectly beautiful husband who loves and cares for us and has done all things necessary for us. Why is it that his kindness has not completely and entirely won our hearts? Father, would you forgive us for seeking our own means of being faithful to you. Would we set those aside and worship our perfect husband, Jesus Christ? In his name and for his glory, amen.